Well, it is certainly good to see everyone back out this afternoon. Good to be with you. I want to thank the College View Church again for the invitation to be here and to study with you today. I've greatly enjoyed our time together and looking forward to this lesson. I had our brother read for us in Matthew chapter 27, verses 47 through 50. If you have your Bibles back open to that passage, I now want to read with you verses 51 through 54. So you remember, we didn't read the whole account, but this crucifixion is what's going on. And our brother read for us about he was calling for Elijah in the statement, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. And then they call, they go and they give him this sour wine. And they say, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And he cries up with a loud spirit, loud voice, and he yields up his spirit. Now verse 51. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Now the centurion and those who were with him keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened and said, Truly this was the Son of God. A couple of important things here we find. Many did not believe Christ to be the Messiah. Many did not want, really want him to be the Messiah because of what he taught and what he did. Many were adverse to him being Messiah and many wanted him crucified in his crucifixion when all this great miraculous things happened in which the veil of the temple was torn, in which bodies arise and go and present themselves to those in the city. Notice who the Scriptures record is the one that says, truly this was the Son of God, a Roman centurion, a Gentile. Matthew does this a lot in his writings. He uses Gentiles a lot to show the faith that even they had when the Jews wouldn't believe in Christ. He uses that in chapter 8. He'll use it with the Syrophoenician woman. He will use it time and time again to show Gentiles looking for the Messiah when the Jews who have the Messiah with them do not believe. The topic of our lesson this afternoon is, I believe. This statement that the Syrian has made, truly this was the Son of God, is a statement of belief. It is a statement of belief in who God and who Jesus was and what power He has and so forth. In John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, it gives us the theme of the book of John. Many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of His disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and through Him you might have life through His name. That's the whole point of the book of John in which He records those miracles is that they might believe who He is, and what He does. And so that's what we want to look at this morning, or this afternoon. What is belief? What is the idea of belief? Belief is the faith we have. It's the things in which we put our stock in, or our hope, or our trust in. But I think as we're getting closer to the holiday season, there's a famous quote from a movie. Seeing is believing but sometimes the most real things in the world are the things we cannot see or can't see from the Polar Express movie. Unfortunately, we are unable to view Christ risen from the dead with our own physical eyes. We can, however, take the word of the Bible. We can, however, use the accounts that were given by first-hand witnesses. And so while we may not see, we can still believe today. And so that's what I want to talk about. We're going to divide, as I said this morning, this lesson into three parts. First, we're going to say, I believe in the words of the Bible. Because brethren, and if you're visiting here and not a member of the Lord's Church, 
one of the most important things we must grasp is belief in the Word of God. One of the things we must grasp so tightly is that we believe the Word of God even if we are a Christian because it ought to center us in how we live. If we believe the words of the Bible, then we will follow it and we will be faithful to it and we will understand. But there's reasons we believe in the Word of the Bible. If you were to go and talk to someone today, why are you a Christian? They say, why do you believe that Bible? That Bible was written by about 40 men. That Bible was written in three different languages. Why would you believe the Bible? We need to have some evidence. We need to be able to prove why I believe in the Bible. So let me suggest to you a few things. First of all, I believe in the words of the Bible due to its inspiration. Due to that it was given by God. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, all Scripture is given by the inspiration of God. And it's possible for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. I believe the words of the Bible because of who they came from. Because they came from God who created this earth. Who fit everything so perfectly together that life might exist on this earth. The problem with this statement is, if you're talking to an atheist, saying it's the inspiration of God will mean nothing to them. So we need to have some other evidence in why we believe the words of the Bible. Let me suggest I believe the words of the Bible because it's complete. We're going to look at a few verses about that. I made mention that there's an estimated 40 writers of the Bible. You know what's common throughout all 66 books of the Bible? It's one central theme. Even through 40 writers, it is one central theme that we find time and time again. And so that gives me reason to believe that the Bible is complete because it's a perfect message. It's the same message even with different authors. But look at a few verses with me. In verse, 13, in verse 17 of 2 Timothy chapter 3, so the man of God may be adequate or complete, depending on your translation, equipped for every good work. In James chapter 1 and verse 17, James writes, Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. There is no change. Everything is complete. I think of words that God Himself penned in Malachi chapter 3 and verse 6, For I, the Lord, do not change. God is describing Himself as such, that He does not change. The Bible is complete. It was once for all handed down to the saints. In Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. There is no change. The Bible is complete. You know, whatever issues we're going through in life, you can go to the Bible and find encouragement. Cell phones didn't exist in the Bible. The temptation that we have with cell phones can still be found in the Bible, though we can still find encouragement and draw strength from people in the Bible who have walked in the same ways we have before. I hear it so often, and it makes me almost laugh every time, that this world is just so corrupt, and it's getting corrupter by the day, and I can't believe that it would be this corrupt, and God hasn't returned yet, that Christ hasn't come back yet. Folks, in Genesis chapter 6, 7, and 8, the world was so corrupt that only eight souls were saved. There's a whole lot more than eight souls in this room this, morning, this afternoon. While the world may be getting more and more wicked each day, it is not the wickedest that it's ever been. And so we have to remember that. And we can draw strength from Noah, because in a world where only eight souls were saved, it says Noah found favor in the sight of God. Noah walked with God. That phrase is used twice in chapters 3 through 6 
to describe Noah and Enoch, a men that walked with God. So I believe the words of the Bible because it is complete. In Jude chapter 3, in Jude verse 3, excuse me, Beloved, I, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. There's no need for a new revelation. There's no need that we look for something new today because the Word of God is complete. It is perfect. It was once given for all. We mentioned this morning that we're 2,000 years nearly removed from the time of the Bible. And the Bible still has the power to save today. And the Bible still has the power to convict souls today. I believe in the words of the Bible because it's complete, it's inspired. But you know, archaeology can also prove it. Going outside of just what we find in the Bible, archaeology can prove it. In 1 Kings chapter 9, verse 17 and 18, So Solomon built Gezer, and the lower Bethoran, and Belah, and Tamar, or Tadmor, depending on your translation, and in the wilderness in the land of Judah. You know, scholars many times pointed out this verse as a reason why the Bible was inaccurate. Because they said, these cities don't exist. You can't find these cities. There's Tadmar. They've uncovered it. And there's the ruins of the Tadmor or Tamar that's mentioned in 1 Kings chapter 9. Now, as a matter of fact, not only is that Tadmar, but you notice the buildings in the background? That's a certain style that was particular to the time of Solomon and was found in many other cities that are mentioned in the Bible as being during the reign of Solomon. So not only was it one city uncovered, this is just the city I put the picture up of. Many other cities were uncovered, and they looked as if they'd been built by the same architect commissioned by the same person to build these cities because they were so similar. Archaeology proves the Bible. Not only that, there was the Garsting expedition in the early 20th century. You know what Garsting and his folks found? They found the ruins of Jericho. You know what else they found? They said the way that the remains were found, there's no way that the walls crumbled. There's no way that they eroded over time. There must have been some major blast in the center of the city to push the walls out to fall flat. I could have told you that. I read the Bible. But that's okay. Archaeologists have confirmed it for us. Many times people said there was no such thing as the Hittite nation. The Hittite nation did not exist. That it was a fallacy of the Bible. You know, at Harvard you can now get a degree in the Hittite culture because they've been able to unearth so much about it that you can now get degrees in the language and in the culture. Then you've got Jehu and other kings, in which some said that Jehu must not have existed, but now there's a lot of pottery that can be found. in uh, They're in museums in London, in Paris, and you know what they're inscribed with? Pictures of King Jehu and the kings that followed him. It's amazing. Archaeology has not proven just one event. Archaeology shows us multiple events throughout life. shows us multiple instances in which the Word of God was true, in which these actions and these events that happened and these people that we read about in the Bible, there's archaeological proof that they lived and walked. I believe in the words of the Bible, also due to history. Many 
discount the claims about who Christ was. Because those who are writing it would be his followers. Those who are writing it would be wanting others to follow him. Well, Josephus, in his book Jewish Antiquities, refers specifically not only to Jesus, but in reference to him being before Pilate and his crucifixion. Josephus is counted as a historian, and he writes in his writings confirming the events of the crucifixion. The evidence is overwhelming to support the words of the Bible. I could spend the rest of the afternoon going through it and tomorrow, and the whole rest of the week. But we don't need that. We can point out a few things and show the words of the Bible are accurate, not just because it came from God, although that's the most important, not just because it's complete, although what good would it be to us if it wasn't, but archaeology and history both prove it. Not only that, science proves it. You know, the Bible wrote that the earth was a circle before it was ever okay to say that the earth was circular. You know, the Bible details different scientific processes that weren't discovered by scientists until years later. And the account that science still cannot prove today is creation. And no matter how hard they try, they'll never be able to prove creation on the way they want to, unless they're willing to accept the Word of God. I believe in the words of the Bible. And so thus, if I believe in the words of the Bible, then I better believe in Jesus. One good friend of mine was actually one of my high school teachers. And looking back on it, I find it very ironic. I went to public school. And he was the leader of what we called FCE, Fellowship of Christian, uh, FCA, Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And he got into an argument with me once about the flood. Well, that, that, can't, that couldn't have happened. And I thought, you're the advisor to FCA and you don't believe in the Bible's account of the flood. There's a bad picture here. But we argued all the time, and it's a sad point that people may believe in the words of the Bible, but not do this second point and believe in Jesus Christ. They'll believe, oh yeah, I'll believe some of the words of the Bible, but I don't believe at all. Well, folks, I believe the entire Bible, and that means I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe that He is the Son of God. That He fulfilled prophecy as such. I'm teaching, like I mentioned this morning, teaching through Matthew at Rock Church. And so one of the things we're doing is as we're going through the book, we're at chapter 21 coming this Wednesday night. We're marking every instance of fulfilled prophecy throughout the book of Matthew. And not just the general ones, but some of the more obscure ones that where He says, I came to... And we're recognizing that there was some prophetic text in the Old Testament. And so we're doing a detailed study on all the different prophecies that are fulfilled. This is just a sampling of them. Some have estimated there's more than 300 prophecies that Christ fulfilled. We're in chapter 20. We just finished chapter 20, and I believe we're, we have a total of 22 that we've done so far through chapter 20. Of, we can actually point out and see. Now, if we were digging deeper, we could find more, more than likely. But it's amazing. It wasn't just one prophecy fulfilled. It wasn't just two prophecies fulfilled. And it wasn't just prophecies about Christ. The one massacre to the infants, of the infants, that Jeremiah foretold in Jeremiah 31, verse 15, 
That was someone else's actions. Someone else caused that to happen. You continue on and you'll find the uh, telling of the dull people, how the people's hearts are dull towards God. You'll find the prophecy of vain worship. You'll find many prophecies that talk about John the Baptist. It's not just that Christ fulfilled prophecy, it's that events that were going on in that time period fulfilled prophecy. The time was right, the people were right, the messenger was right, because John the Baptist fulfilled the prophecies of the messenger. And so I believe that he's the Son of God because there's ample evidence to prove it. There's ample passages we can turn to and read and then go forward to our New Testament and study. Isn't it an amazing thing that we can say that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and there's ample evidence to back it up? I believe that He's the Son of God because God acknowledged Him as such. It's not just simply He fulfilled prophecy. In Luke chapter 3, verse 21 and 22, Now when all the people were baptized, Jesus also was baptized. And while He was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended upon Him in a bodily form like a dove. And a voice came out from heaven, You are My beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, or in you I am well pleased. Over in Matthew chapter 17, at the account of the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter says, Let me build a tabernacle for each of you. And the problem with that was is he was elevating Moses and Elijah to the same point as Christ. Or you could say he was downgrading Christ to the same plane as Moses and Elijah, whichever way you want to look at that. And there's a problem, and God immediately speaks and He says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye Him. Three things that are found in that statement. Number one, God acknowledges Him as His Son. He acknowledges Him as the relationship that's between God the Father and Jesus Christ. Number two, it shows the faithfulness of Christ. Christ was sent with a mission. Some say, why didn't Christ just go everywhere telling him that he was the Messiah? Well, it's because he didn't want a big following. That's not what it was. Scripture said he wouldn't do that. Scripture said that he would not go everywhere preaching his name. Scripture said that he would go and do the work that was of the ministry that he was to do. He was faithful to God. He was doing everything God had told him to do. That's that second line, in whom I'm well pleased. And the third one signified the authority of Christ. Hear ye him. He has authority. You hear him. There's three, there's three points made out of that statement. But so God acknowledges Christ as his son, not only at the baptism, but also at the Mount of Transfiguration. And I believe that he's the son of God because he arose. He conquered death. In Matthew chapter 28, verses 5 and 6, the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here. He has risen. Just as he said, come and see the place where he's laying. Those women went and they found the open tomb. Christ wasn't there. Now you may say that verse doesn't prove that he arose, even though it says that, because they're not seeing him. He's just not there. Alright, well let's come to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 5-8. through 8. After that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, and he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles, and then last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Paul is saying that at the time of his writing in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, more than 251, because that would be more than, that would be a majority of that 500, are still alive today. You had eyewitness testimony 
if I was the judge, and I was, let's say I'm the prosecutor, if I'm the prosecutor and I want to prosecute you for whatever crime you've done, I would love a case that has 251 eyewitnesses that saw you do it. Because I'd have a slam dunk. If I have one or two eyewitnesses, someone might could argue that. If I had three or four, they might could say they colluded. If I had ten, maybe they'd say, well, they've just all been paid to do the story. 251, there's not a defense attorney in this world that'll take on those. I have 251 eyewitnesses that Christ arose. That's proof enough. In Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, it says, And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky, while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside him. They said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who's been taken from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. You see, Christ arose and then he ascended back on high. And he's going to come again. We'll mention that in just a moment. I believe that he's the Son of God and that he had power over infirmity and death. Matthew chapter 11 and verse 5. The blind receive the sight and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. What's happened in Matthew chapter 11 is John's disciples have come to Christ and said, Are you the one or do we look for another? And he says, You go and you tell what you see. And he gives this sentence. And what's happened is he's actually quoting Isaiah chapter 35 and Isaiah chapter 61, two prophecies being fulfilled there. He says, You go and you tell. Christ had power over sickness and over death. He had power over space. And what we mean by that is the story in Mark chapter 7, verses 29 and 30. And he said to her, Because of this answer, go. The demon has come out of your daughter. And going back to her home, she found the child lying on the bed, the demon having left. When I say space, I'm talking about location. His power was not limited by location. His power was not limited by time either. Over in John chapter 11, we won't take the time to read all these passages, but this is the story of Lazarus. You have Lazarus dying, Jesus knowing, Jesus coming, Jesus rising, rising him from the dead. Raising him from the dead. There we go. I'll get it out eventually. But so that's the story. His power was not limited by time. Lazarus was dead, and he made him to arise. Because the reality is he has power because he has all authority. As we mentioned this morning in Matthew chapter 28 and verse 18, all authority had been given to him in heaven and on earth. Christ Jesus' power was not limited in any way. And brethren, may we never try to limit it. May we never try to say Christ didn't have power to do such and such. Jesus Christ had all power. I believe that he's the Son of God, that he had power, and that his mission was to keep to, came to seek and save the lost. He came to those who were in need of a Savior to those who needed His help. Mark chapter 2, in verse 17, After hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. I'm also reminded of the parable of the lost sheep, in which 99 were safe, and one was in danger. And who? Did Christ just stay with the 99? No, He went to seek and save that one that was lost. 
if I was your banker and I said, you've got a 99% chance of saving your money, but you've got a 1% chance of recovering the whole thing, most people would not take those odds because it's just 1% that's gone. They're not going to try for that 1%. It's just 1%. The the moral of the story is every single person matters to Christ. And thus, every single person should matter to each of us. Jesus Christ came to seek and save that which was lost. And we need to try to imitate that message and that work. I believe in Jesus that He died willingly for all. There was a sacrifice that needed to be made. Man was sinful in the need of a sacrifice. And it wasn't going to be a bull or a goat. No lamb was going to be able to atone for the sins of the world except the perfect lamb. And that being Jesus Christ. But let me tell you, as a sacrifice, He went willingly. He did not go under compulsion. God didn't say, you must go, I don't care what you want to do. He went willingly to die for a sinful people. He went willingly to die for you and for me. Matthew chapter 26 and verse 39. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, My Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me yet not as I will, but as you will. I tell you, tears come to my eyes when I look at this passage. Because he's wanting God to let this cup pass from him, but he's willing to do it because it's the will of the Father. And he's willing to do it because the sinful people needed a sacrifice. There's no greater love you'll ever find on this earth than what's recorded here. There's no greater message can ever be told than what's recorded here. That Christ willingly died for the world. I believe in the words of the Bible. I believe in Jesus. And I believe that He's coming again. He's coming to gather the saints. Let's point that out first. In 1 Thessalonians, the last part of verse 16 of chapter 4 and verse 17, And the dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we shall always be with the Lord. Christ is coming to gather His people, the people that He died for, the people that are faithful to Him, the people that believe in the words of the Bible and believe that He is the Son of God and thus obey Him. Christ is coming for them. He's also coming to bring judgment. On this earth, sometimes we get so tied up with the wicked prosper, the wicked prosper, the wicked prosper, and the righteous suffer. Let me tell you, when that trumpet sounds, judgment will be rendered. And those who are faithful will enter into the joy, and those who are unfaithful will get their reward as well. It's a reward. A punishment is a reward. Absolutely. Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonderful works in your name? And I will declare to them, Depart from me, I never knew you, ye who work lawlessness. 
judgment's coming. Matthew chapter 25 and verse 46, Christ says these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. I'm looking for that judgment day not only so that the wicked will get what's coming to them, but I'm looking for that judgment day because I get to go to heaven. And I don't get to be on this earth anymore where the wicked prosper. And I don't have to be on this earth anymore where there's pain and toil and tribulation. I get to be with God. How wonderful that is. He's coming again, but it's going to be like a thief. No one knows when it's going to happen. First Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 2, Revelation 16 and verse 15, Behold, I am coming like a thief. We were talking about that on our way today. I was mentioning I used to have a... There was an office here in Columbia that I used to come up to a couple times a year to train others at. And we were, they were asking where it was, the Gwens were, and I said, oh, it's over by the Dollar General. They got robbed. That's, what I, that's how I remember easily, easily where it was. The statement was made, you're not really safe from robbery anywhere anymore. That's true. Nobody knows when the thief's coming. He doesn't send you a note saying, I'm going to be by tomorrow about 3 o'clock. If you could leave everything out, that'd be great. Thief doesn't do that. You come home one day and you find out you've been robbed. That's how that happens. You don't know when it's going to happen. You have to be prepared. Install it shallots at home. Hide certain things in not obvious places. You have to be prepared. Well, Christ is coming like a thief. We've got to be prepared. Because it may be in the next five minutes maybe in the next five years, maybe in the next 5,000 years. We don't know when it is. But I've got to live each day prepared that that's the day. So I must be ready. That's the reality of it. I must prepare myself and be ready. Revelation chapter 16 and verse 15, Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked and men will not see his shame. We've got to be ready. We mentioned this morning, Revelation chapter 22 and verse 14, Blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and enter into the gates, through the gates into the city. We've got to be ready every moment of every day. I believe in the words of the Bible. I believe in Jesus. I believe that He's coming again. And then our final point for just a few moments this morning. I believe while others may not. And that's the sad reality. Others may not believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Others may not believe that He's coming again. You know, there's a big group that thinks He's already come. It's growing in importance. or growing in number. People think Christ has already returned. And we're just here in the afterwhile. Then there's a big group that don't believe in the words of the Bible. And the reality is I have to understand that that while I believe, others may not. George MacDonald had a quote that says, Seeing is not believing, it is only seeing. My eyes may see it, but I don't believe it. I want you to think about that. Have you ever seen something with your own eyes, but you just can't believe it, and you don't believe it, and you don't accept it? That's the difference between seeing and believing. Believing is accepting what you've seen and responding to it. In that great account back in Matthew chapter 27, I don't think there could be any better evidence than to see someone who I know is dead and buried arise and walk into the city. 
And when Christ died, that happened. The veil of the temple was torn, and people arose and came into the city who'd been dead. Now, that was someone I knew. I think I might almost die myself. That's great miracle that's happened. But yet, you know, there were several that didn't believe even with that. Because then, chapter 27, at the end of the chapter, starting in verse 62, it says, Now on the day after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that he was still alive, while he was still alive, that deceiver said, After three days I am to rise again. Therefore give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, He is risen from the dead. And the last deception will be far worse than the first, or worse than the first. These are people who have seen him die, the temple veil be torn, these people arise, and you know where they go and they say to Pilate? That deceiver. Folks, they had much more evidence than I could ever give you today. They had eyewitness testimony, they saw the miracles performed, and they still did not believe And that's the sad reality of it. Sometimes we become hard on those in the Bible. And sometimes it's for good reason. They had all this evidence right there before their eyes. And they couldn't even see it. I think of a song we sometimes sing, sing, Open our eyes, Lord, we want to see Jesus. They had Jesus in their midst, with their eyes open, but not open to the fact of what's going on not open to the reality around them. I hope there's no one here in this audience today that's like that. Those here today, the question is, do you believe? Do you believe in the words of the Bible? Because belief, again, is more than just seeing them and understanding them. I heard one person say one time, they were looking over in Matthew chapter 19, and they read the section on divorce, and they said, Yep, that's what it says. I don't believe it. It's just simply the Word of God. I hope that's not you. But then there's the others, and they're the ones that probably irritate me a little bit more. And they look and they read it. They say, yep, that's what it says. Christ said it. I believe it. But I won't live it. Again, they've just seen. They've not believed. Belief involves the response. Belief involves being obedient and responsive to what's gone on. If you're here this afternoon and you need to make yourself right with God, I pray you will. I pray you won't leave this place in a wrong state with God. I hope you can see that the words of the Bible are true and that you believe in Jesus Christ and you believe that He's coming again. And in believing that He's coming again, you know He's only coming for His saints and to bring judgment for all. And so I pray you'll obey the gospel this afternoon. But maybe you're here and you need to make yourself right with God because you've not been living properly, you've not done what you need to do. Please correct that today. If you need prayers, we'll be glad to pray for you and with you. We'll do whatever we can to help you. I just ask you, do you believe in the words of the Bible? And if so, then why won't you obey today? We invite you to now. Come forward now as we stand and as we sing the song that's been selected.